Welcome to episode 80 of Goodwill Hunters from the Development Policy Centre. I'm your host, Rachel Mason-Nunn. The focus of today's episode is Chinese aid. Our guests today are Ji Hongbo and Deng Hua Zhang. China's aid has been on the rise for years, not only in the Pacific, but around the world. And with China-US rivalry taken to a new level as a result of COVID-19, China's aid is set to become more important and more controversial than ever. We often hear from experts on China about Chinese aid, but rarely from Chinese experts themselves. Yet given China's complexity, not to mention the language barriers, hearing from those who understand the country and its systems is obviously critical. In this episode, I chat with two experts who have both worked in the past for China's Ministry of Foreign Affairs. Ji Hongbo is the Asia Foundation's country representative in China, in Canberra for the year at the ANU, but normally based in Beijing. Hongbo's prior experience includes five years of diplomatic experience with China's Ministry of Foreign Affairs, including an assignment to the Permanent Mission of China to the United Nations in New York. Deng Hua is a research fellow in the Department of Pacific Affairs at the ANU. He completed his PhD on Chinese foreign aid and trilateral aid cooperation in 2017 and recently released a book with ANU Press titled A Cautious Approach, China's Growing Trilateral Aid Cooperation. We've included a link to it in the show notes. Before becoming an academic, Deng Hua also worked as a Chinese diplomat, including with a stint in the Pacific, based in Tonga. Hongbo and I discuss China's approach to international aid and development, including China's focus on bilateral engagement over trilateral or multilateral engagement. We also discuss the rise of NGOs in China and the independence of these NGOs as they attempt to implement government-funded projects. We discuss what traditional donors can learn from China and vice versa. Lastly, we discuss how Chinese aid is responding to COVID-19. Deng Hua and I discuss China's approach to the Pacific and why China is so interested in the Pacific region. We address claims of debt trap diplomacy and deepening military and security ties. We also discuss whether China can realistically collaborate with Australia on aid delivery on an ongoing basis. In this episode, you'll hear some real insider perspectives on Chinese aid. It's a rare opportunity and I hope it promotes the sort of understanding we're going to need as a globe if we are to successfully navigate China's rise to superpower status. For more coverage of Chinese aid to the Pacific, including articles by Denghua and Hongbo, visit the Dev Policy blog. We've included links to recent articles in the show notes. You'd also be aware that the government released a strategy a few days ago outlining Australia's response to COVID-19 in the region. We'll be bringing you more coverage and analysis of that soon. Enjoy the episode. Here's Hongbo. Hongbo, thanks for speaking with me. Can you start by telling me about your studies of international development and your career so far in the aid sector? Well, studying international relations, I got really interested in international development, you know, issues related to um, development economics, poverty, inequality. So I moved uh, then, you know, from World Bank projects to Canadian CEDA agricultural projects, and I joined the Asia Foundation in 2007. But um, in those days, most of my experience focused mostly on donor-funded programs in China. In, then in the past 10 years or so, you know, with China becoming the world's second largest economy and its influence uh, increasing in the rest of the world, especially in Asia, uh, we felt that this was an area that needed attention. There's a role that we should play uh, to help facilitate understanding of what China is doing in terms of its aid and investment. Who are the various actors on the China side? designing and implementing the China going out strategy? And is China doing things differently? At the same time, um, a lot of our Chinese partners, uh, you know, they've been our partners for our domestic programs in China. They now are interested in knowing how to work internationally. You know, what is the legal, social and cultural issues that they need to know uh, when they go and set up a 
you know, an office in Nepal, for example. So we've been now uh, working, um, as you know, Asia Foundation has been working in Asia, uh, in Asia for over 60 years. So we're able to leverage that network and deep knowledge uh, to provide information and facilitate exchanges and experience sharing between China and its nation, uh, Asian neighbors. And this is how I got into what we're doing now. Historically, China has focused on bilateral engagement rather than multilateral engagement or using NGOs or contractors to deliver aid like the other donors do. Can you reflect on that and why that is? You know, a a number of different actors, actually, both governmental and non-governmental, are involved in Chinese aid. In in terms of aid planning, uh, Chinese aid, like other bilateral donors' aid, it is uh, indeed mostly government to government. That is to say, um, the Chinese government relies on needs expressed by uh, partner country uh, government. This is like OECD donors developing country portfolio plans for a particular recipient country uh, in consultation with their recipient country counterparts. But Chinese government agencies in charge of aid, um, like the Foreign Aid Department of the Ministry of Commerce in the past, and now the new um, um, aid agency, the China International Development Cooperation Agency, they also rely heavily on assessments, feasibility studies, uh, developed by think tanks and academic institutions. You know, the Chinese Academy of International Trade and Economic Cooperation has long played this role. There are also other technical institutions affiliated with the government that are tasked with, uh, you know, managing complete projects, say building of a bridge, uh, in-kind donations, and training of officials from partner countries. These institutions are affiliated with the government at varying degrees. Um, In China, one needs to look at a number of different factors to determine if an institution is governmental or not. The line can be very uh, blurry, and as reforms in these areas are still ongoing, that line can shift as the result of reforms. And non-governmental actors, such as Chinese companies, uh, can also win uh, projects, you know, implementation of projects through a bidding process. You mentioned just now, you know, traditional donors like Australia depend on NGOs and other uh, contractors. Um, You know, DFAT has NGO partnerships. Um, Asia Foundation has uh, such a partnership arrangement with DFAT. For China, when designing and implementing projects, Chinese official aid has not involved NGOs, um, you know, like you said. But a few um, small experiments uh, have been uh, made so far, but no institutional framework like the DFAT partnership with, with NGOs actually exists. And almost no money uh, has um, uh, flown um, at all from government official aid budget to Chinese NGOs. Um, why this is the case? Well, Chinese NGOs are still um, developing. You know, very few have had any international experience, and there's also you know a lack of trust. Um, what if NGOs take government aid money and make a mess? Um, this will be detrimental to Chinese government reputation. So this is a big concern on the mind of uh, the Chinese government. Uh, this situation situation is hopefully changing. You know government is trying to learn how to procure services from NGOs for aid project design and delivery. Um, For example, um, last year, um, I was invited to give a talk uh, to Chinese uh, government affiliated agencies in charge of this to talk about how we select and monitor our grantees, how we do due diligence, how we review grantee proposals, how we do monitoring and evaluation, financial management, and other international organizations also have been providing support to the Chinese government in designing the criteria on evaluating and selecting NGOs for aid projects. So hopefully one day there may also be an NGO partnership arrangement between Chinese NGOs and Chinese aid agencies. As you've said, China is encouraging the development of NGOs. Are we to believe that those NGOs are independent or are they acting on behalf of the state? Yeah, well, there are um, over um, 800,000 registered NGOs and CSOs uh, in China, and they're a very diverse uh, group. 
uh, you know, you have those who were formed by the government in the past. They received government funding for operations and, and programs. Most of these are ongoing reforms right now. Uh, there have been ongoing reforms on divesting from the government what should be the functions of society and of businesses. And there you also have um, CSOs working at the local level, uh, focusing on providing services. There are also an increasing number of uh, foundations set up by private enterprises and wealthy um, individuals. And um, in recent years, China has been encouraging uh, Chinese NGOs to, to go out. They, uh, the government realizes that relations uh, with other countries and uh, need to be at various levels. But as mentioned um, uh, just now, um, very little Chinese official aid money has been given to Chinese NGOs for implementation of aid projects. Um, and, but, you know, the world is beginning to see Chinese NGOs outside of China. Um, they fall in a few very different, uh, a few different uh, categories. Uh, there are those who focus on advocacy, you know, they attend international conferences, UN meetings, uh, climate change uh, conferences. There are also those who provide search and rescue and other disaster response and humanitarian assistance. Um, you have also Chinese NGOs who are now beginning to do more uh, long-term underground development work, and, you know, opening local offices. Um, their funding mainly come from, comes from enterprises and Ch the Chinese um, general public uh, through online uh, fundraising campaigns, uh, for example. Uh, for example, their funding is very limited, and this is one of the constraints facing Chinese NGOs who want to play a greater role on the world stage. On the NGO side, some are advocating for Chinese aid budget being spent uh, by NGOs, maybe at a, a percentage level. Um, there are also, um, at the same time, uh, those who argue um, you know, if you receive Chinese government money, uh, you'll be seen even more as acting on behalf of the Chinese government. And uh, those NGOs would say, you know, we should maintain our independence. And this is so important for us to gain credibility, uh, both internationally and with our local uh, partners. Um, also, you have now a very, very small number of Chinese NGOs who are uh, beginning to win international donor projects to carry out programs in Asia and Africa. So this is a very uh, lively and, and complex uh, issue and, and debate. So would you say China is encouraging the emergence of NGOs as a form of soft diplomacy to perhaps make some of China's more controversial aid projects more palatable for recipient countries? Yeah, I think increasingly on the Chinese side, um, uh, the government and a lot of Chinese companies are realizing that um, you know they cannot just um, deal with uh, local um, stakeholders only at the central government level. Um, you know the same way that they've been doing business uh, for Chinese companies, the same way that they've been doing business uh, in China may not work in uh, uh, in another country where you have a strong local uh, civil society. Uh, you have a, a you know uh, communities that you need to be uh, uh, considering. Uh, so they're real, realizing more and more that um, NGOs, uh, Chinese NGOs, may be able to help uh, to play um, this role. Uh, but on the NGO side, I think on the one hand, um, they appreciate this increasing demand on, on um, how they can be uh, an actor on the international um, stage. Um, on the other hand, they also don't want to be seen as a tool uh, of the Chinese government or of uh, Chinese uh, companies uh, because of this uh, credibility issue. Um, also, you know, um, uh, NGO, Chinese NGOs still face, in addition to the lack of funding, a lot of obstacles uh, in order to uh, be able to do uh, activities overseas. Um, for example, there's uh, still not uh, a good policy framework, um, uh, including, you know, tax and customs uh, issues, uh, cross-border shipment of goods, uh, transferring funds from China to uh, other places. 
a lot of, a lot of uh, these uh, specific issues are still uh, not resolved. Do you think that policy framework will be improved in the coming years? Uh, we certainly hope so. Um, and, you know, the new Chinese aid agency um, only uh, recently passed its two-year uh, mark. There are a lot of uh, priorities on this agenda, uh, but certainly there's a lot of hope that these uh, issues, including funding and, and these other uh, practical issues, can be on SICA's agenda. Now, an important question that's often asked in regards to Chinese aid is what can traditional donors learn from China's approach to aid and vice versa? Yeah, well, I think there's, you know, so much rethinking surrounding aid and international development uh, cooperation. Um, for example, you know, um, Jonathan Glenny was on your show uh, not long ago, and he spoke at the February uh, Aust- Australasia Aid Conference about five uh, paradigm shifts, including, you know, from reducing poverty to reducing inequality, from north-south to universal. And I think these types of rethinking and debates are extremely important as the current language and norms in traditional aid uh, have been around for so long, and a lot of them are outdated. Um, on traditional donor uh, traditional donors uh, versus China as a donor, I think before any mutual learning can happen, there really needs to be better understanding. You know, Chinese aid has traditionally not been super transparent. Very little is known on how much is spent in a particular partner country, uh, what type of programs, uh, how much was committed uh, versus how much is actually spent, which Chinese agency is responsible for what programs. So one of the key mandates of China's new aid agency is to facilitate greater coordination among uh, different ministries and provide greater transparency to Chinese aid. Uh, We at the Asia Foundation and others are also trying to shed more light on Chinese aid you know, we've done country analysis, analyzing an investment in a specific country in, in Asia. I think when more is known, um, people may realize that there are far more similarities than differences. Um, for example, you know, pri- a public-private partnership, shared value, leveraging, um, all these are very hot topics among OECD donors. But what well, China is doing be and leveraging the private sector on its aid programs, particularly in the areas of health and agriculture. You know, in health, uh, think, you know, Chinese vaccine companies producing and providing vaccines to the African continent. In agriculture, you have Chinese uh, agricultural companies working with local partner country government uh, to set up agricultural demonstration sites, you know, using the the company plus farmer uh, model. So I believe all donors should uh, ultimately, you know, uh, refrain from trying to export or replicate uh, what has been successful in their own countries or in other places. The partner countries' needs um, should be driving what donors do and and how they, they approach their aid program. It's interesting that you say that there are more similarities than differences between Chinese aid and that of traditional donors. Why do you think it is that there are so many misconceptions and that people jump to so many conclusions about Chinese aid? As I mentioned just now, there's um, um, there's a lack of um, understanding, and um, a lot of that is um, because of uh, because China has not been providing uh, very detailed information on um, its um, aid programs, um, and also. Um, you know, from, <laughs> there's also lack of um, dialogue. A um, lot of times, you know, people uh, are um, talking about emotions, uh, talking about um, geopolitics, rather than, you know, what the facts are on the ground and what is actually happening. Um, I think once you get, get into uh, the details of, you know, what Chinese um, aid programs are actually uh, uh, doing on the ground and how they have been perceived by the partner countries and what Chinese companies are doing uh, under the Belt and Road Initiative and how uh, they are perceived on the ground. There are a lot of um, nuances and I think um, uh, partner uh, stakeholders like, like us, like the Asia Foundation, what we can do is try to 
um, you know, try, try to help uh, unravel some of these myths uh, and to uh, provide a clearer picture. One difference that China does promote between its program and that of other donors is that China says that its aid program is unconditional or that there are no strings attached. Is it truly an unconditional aid program? Um, yeah, well, I think um, this is um, uh, really a, a very big issue of um, sovereignty uh, uh, for China. You know, given China's own past and current experiences, it really attaches paramount importance to sovereignty. It doesn't want its sovereignty and internal affairs to get interfered uh, by foreign forces. It uh, so um, uh, it observes the same principle on its aid program to other uh, developed developing uh, countries. And also, um, I think aid policies and approaches are very often, uh, you know, reflections of domestic experiences. Uh, if you uh, look at China's own reform and opening up uh, its economic, uh, its, you know, tremendous uh, economic growth experience in the past 40 years, it is one of trying to understand a few, you know, so-called good models, and then decide uh, for itself, which one it wants to pick, uh, which part of a particular model it wants to pick. So similarly, uh, China believes that the partner, partner countries um, should know what is best for them. It is not for China to attach conditions, you know, asking the partner countries to have to, you know, change this or that in order to receive uh, Chinese aid. Uh, but um, this approach assumes a strong and uh, benevolent central government. And as I mentioned just now, China is now realizing uh, that this may not work in other countries, that in uh, you know, some countries, um, central government may be weak. And what is agreed upon um, with the central government uh, may not get implement, uh, implemented at the local level or uh, may get so much resistance by local media, uh, local civil society. So um, in the face of these challenges, China is trying to learn to listen to and communicate uh, with a broader range of stakeholders in partner countries. It's a complex topic because on the one hand, yes, China is concerned with the sovereignty of other countries, but on the other hand, China is often accused of debt trap diplomacy or indebting countries and then using that debt for geopolitical gains. Where do you stand on that debate? Yeah, um, I think this is um, um, exactly an issue of uh, an issue of you know using a, a, a phrase that can attract a lot of attention, and then a lot of people and the media uh, uh, begin to use it without really looking at the facts. I think there are already a number of uh, studies, uh, very detailed studies, uh, looking at uh, Chinese debt uh, in Africa, Chinese debt in uh, Latin America. In Africa, for example, uh, you know, um, um, I think the percentage is around um, 40, uh, 40% of Ar African debt is to, uh, you know, private uh, 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 creditors. Um, and a lot of uh, the remaining is to multilateral uh, banks. Um, and then, you know, a smaller proportion is to uh, bilateral donors. And then a, a proportion of that is to um, China. So um, again, um, I think we need to look at um, facts. And um, also, you know, when we um, look at the word uh, trap, it indicates an intention on the Chinese side uh, to, uh, you know, to set something up uh, with other uh, motives. And I think we need to look at really uh, a project by project level um, to see that, um, you know, that's not the, uh, the case. The, um, the merit of each uh, project, of course, needs to be uh, studied very carefully, but I don't think overall there's an approach uh, to trap any country into uh, indebting to, uh, to China. Now, of course, we have to address COVID-19. How is Chinese aid responding to COVID-19? And how is Chinese aid being received since the outbreak of COVID-19? Yeah, I think, um, you know, this is really a, um, such a 
important issue uh, that we should be looking at. Um, but before that, I, I wanted to mention, you know, there's a, a long Chinese tradition, uh, uh, very uh, deep in people's mind of, you know, giving to families and friends uh, who are struck by a disaster or have a family member who's, um, who's got a very serious um, disease and hospitalized. In the old days, this was a way of providing mutual support. Uh, now, I mean, this doesn't mean that those receiving uh, uh, support are poor and cannot afford medicine or treatment on their own. Um, but it's also, it's more a gesture of uh, goodwill uh, to show that as your friend, uh, as your extended family, we're thinking about you when you're in difficulty. Um, so, you know, uh, related to COVID-19, when the pandemic situation was most serious in China in February, there was uh, an outpouring of donations uh, to China from countries around the world, including, you know, from some of the least developed countries. And I think Chinese government and people see this um, as, um, you know, support, uh, concrete support, and also as a, a demonstration of uh, goodwill and friendship. So then as situation in China was gradually under control and as factories reopened, uh, there were more uh, PPEs and other materials that were being produced, which uh, were then available for export and for donation. And China at the same time also had accumulated um, knowledge and experience um, on how to contain the virus and how to treat uh, patients. So it started to uh, provide assistance and donations to other countries. It is also very much a reciprocal gesture for the good will that it has uh, received. In terms of uh, Chinese uh, response, uh, on the government uh, side, um, the Chinese government has described its global response as, uh, quote, the most intensive and wide-ranging emergency humanitarian operation uh, since the founding of the People's Republic of China in 1949. Um, you know, China provided a huge amount of masks and PPEs. And according to um, State Councilor and Foreign Minister Wang Yi uh, at the press conference, uh, actually just yesterday, uh, China had sent 26 uh, medical teams to 24 countries and organized um, uh, video, uh, video conferences with 170 countries for sharing of uh, diagnostic experience and medical information. China has also uh, made contributions to the WHO, uh, including uh, very recently at the World Health Assembly, uh, President Xi Jinping announced uh, another uh, uh, two billion US dollars contribution to global COVID-19 response uh, in the next two years, and also promised uh, to make the vaccine uh, once it's de developed to be uh, made uh, available. And uh, there's also uh, strengthened uh, promises of debt scheduling uh, for Africa. Um, when, when we look at Chinese assistance on COVID-19, we must realize that um, a very large amount was actually contributed from non-governmental uh, channels. So Chinese companies, uh, for example, both uh, state-owned and private companies, they also have been providing lots of materials and medical assistance. I think especially uh, companies that have significant uh, business interests um, overseas, um, such as you know, construction companies, Chinese banks, um, energy companies, um, technology companies, and then um, Chinese private uh, philanthropies also have been quite um, active. You, you know, you have uh, Jack Ma's, um, Alibaba and Jack Ma Foundations uh, donated um, medical supplies to more than 100 countries, uh, including all countries on the, um, on the African continent. Um, they shared uh, diagnostic manuals in eight languages on the internet and social media. Um, Jack Ma himself um, opened an account on Twitter uh, for the first time uh, to, you know, disseminate uh, information. 
um, uh, there's also you know the Chinese Foundation for Poverty Alleviation, a long-term partner for the Asia Foundation, and uh, one of a few Chinese NGOs who have offices in partner countries. Um, they're installing up to 108 uh, hand washing stations um, in Nepal, um, working with local partners uh, to provide uh, sanitizers, hand washing facilities, and uh, virus prevention training. There's also an unprecedented uh, number of other Chinese NGOs, um, uh, you know, providing relief um, uh, and international assistance, uh, like uh, alumni associations, community uh, groups. Um, Chinese NGO sector's international response to COVID-19 is now seen as another milestone uh, for Chinese NGOs' global, uh, globalization um, effort. So in terms of how Chinese aid uh, related to COVID-19 is being received, um, I think, you know, as China was ahead of the curve in terms of when it got hit and when it brought the pandemic under control, it got back to work and uh, speed up the production of uh, supplies when other countries um, saw rising case numbers and were running short on supplies. China was then able to provide materials that were badly needed. Um, Chinese doctors also had practical and fresh medical experiences that can be um, shared. Uh, there was a recent article uh, written by an African um, scholar comparing Chinese aid uh, to with um, you know some other um, aid to um, Africa for COVID-19, and she identified uh, two main differences. Um, uh, you know, China provided much needed materials and developed them to the doorsteps of uh, the African countries, whereas other donors, uh, you know, repurposed existing commitment on funding uh, to COVID-19. Um, and then secondly, uh, you know, China provided uh, medical experiences on uh, containing the spread and treatment and, and treating of uh, patients. And this has uh, credibility, especially uh, as China is seen as having contained the virus when many other countries were still uh, struggling. So on these points, I, I, I agree that, um, you know, Chinese response and assistance is seen in a very positive way. Um, but of course, you know, there's still um, a very strong ongoing demand and concern on debt relief um, for Africa, um, concerns about um, growing Chinese influence and soft power. Um, a lot of this is um, uh, rooted uh, in geopolitics and um, had existed pre-COVID-19. And these um, you know, continue to be challenges that China uh, will have to face in the long term. Thanks, Hongbo, for speaking with me. That was Ji Hongbo. Next, I speak to Denghua Zhang. Denghua, thanks for speaking with me. You formerly worked as a diplomat for the Chinese government in the Pacific and then made the switch to researcher. What made you make the change? Actually, I was working as, as a former diplomat in, in Tonga in 2006 to 2008. That's a long time ago. And that's my first overseas post, which I really enjoyed. And that's also my first policy my first exposure to the Pacific Islands, and which was quite uh, exciting. And then I worked there for two years, and then another three years in Wellington, New Zealand. And then I went back to Beijing, and I resigned after a couple of years because I want to have a career change after working as a public servant for, for about 10 years. And I think maybe because of the, how to say, the, the personal interest, I find that I'm more interested in being uh, a scholar and doing academic re research. And I think that's the main reason for me to, to have the career change, which of course is not so easy. <laughs> but the good thing is that I think my, my working experience, my work experience in the Pacific has sparked my deep interest in the region, and which I think is a good start for me to, to do my PhD research on Chinese the foreign aid, especially the trilateral aid cooperation in the Pacific Islands. And what was that like being a diplomat in Tonga? I think the, it's a small mission there. 
And that means every one of us need to do a lot of work. As I mentioned, that's my first time working in the Pacific countries. And I really love the culture there. I love the people and the culture there. I think that's fascinating. And I still remember that when we work, uh, how do you think, on the street, I think people there are so kind. They're happy to share the watermelons with you. <laughs> so China has committed over $1.7 billion to working in the Pacific. Why is China so attracted to working in the Pacific? I think uh, we cannot reduce the Chinese interest in the Pacific region, just to one or two factors. And it's always a combination, which is quite similar to China's the, uh, the presence in the other regions, such as Asia or Africa. And in the Pacific in particular, I think there are some main reasons for China to be interested in the race region. I, to me, I think the first, the first the motive is about the, the Taiwan issue. As you know, that China and Taiwan, they have been competing for the uh, diplomatic recognition for decades. And in the Pacific, before September last year, uh, before September last year six Pacific Island countries in the region, they recognized Taiwan. And eight of the, uh, and eight of the island countries, they recognized Beijing. So you can, so you can see how important a region, this region is to both China and Taiwan in this aspect. And... Uh, of course, after September 2000, uh, 2019, that's last year, two countries, they switched their recognition from Taiwan to China, and they are Solomon Islands and, Island and Kiribati. So the Taiwan issue is one, is one of the main reasons. And of course, there are some other reasons. One is the economic interest. We can say that uh, an increasing number of the Chinese enterprises has shown interest in investing in this region for economic reasons commercial benefits. In general, we can divide these enterprises into two main groups. The first are those big enterprises, which are closely linked to the Chinese government. We call them the state-owned enterprises. And the second, the second type of the business are those IT-owned small business. If you, visit, if you have the, the chance to visit the Pacific Island countries, you can see a large number of those small grocery shops selling almost everything, everything and they are owned by those small, how do you say, small, either family or relative owned business. So this is the second motive, and that's the Chinese growing economic interest in the region. And then there are some other reasons, such as the, the image building. I think this is quite similar for China and the, some of the other development partner countries, such as Australia and New Zealand. Yeah. For foreign aid, they always have elements of altruism in it. And another reason, I think, from a, from a political or from a strategic perspective, the, China, uh, the Chinese government sees the Pacific region as, part, as an important part of the China's South-South cooperation. That's, that is Chinese, the, the outreach to the global South. And, and clearly, Pacific Island countries are part of the, the global South. So I think these are some of the main reasons for China's the growing interest in the region. Can you comment some more on the Taiwan versus China geopolitical situation and how that motivates China to have a deeper presence in the Pacific? In the Pacific, we have 14, altogether we have 14 independent sovereign states. Uh, four of them recognize the Republic of China or Taiwan. And these four countries, they include the Palau, Nauru, uh, Marshall Islands, and Tuvalu. So they still recognize Taiwan. And for the rest of them, including the two I mentioned, which made their recent switch to just, uh, from Taiwan to China, that are Solomon Islands and Kiribati, they recognize the, they recognize the mainland China, the People's Republic of China, PRC, to both Taiwan and China. And I, uh, at the moment, I think for, for each Pacific Island country, you can choose one side. You can recognize only one of them. Why do you think there is so much concern and skepticism about China's interests in the Pacific? One main reason is that, uh, as you may know, that China has substantially increased its presence in the region, starting from 2006, because in 2006, an important event took place. That is, China, the Chinese premier at that time, Chinese premier visited the region, visited Fiji for the first time. 
That's the first visit by a Chinese premier in history. So that visit itself is important. The second reason is that at the during the visit, the Chinese premier the, he inaugurated the China Pacific Islands Economic Development and Cooperation Forum, which become such an important umbrella framework for China and the Pacific Island countries to conduct cooperation. And also, it is at this uh, the the conference that China announced to provide uh, 3 billion Chinese RMB in concessional loans to the Pacific Island countries. And this marks the start uh, of the large inflows of concessional loans from China to the Pacific Island countries. So that's why we always say that the China started to increase its presence to the, uh, in the Pacific since 2006. It is because the China has substantially increased its presence in the region. And then there are some other reasons why that I think uh, the the concerns they center around a few main aspects. One is about the Chinese motivations or motives, as they have mentioned. I think the the debates on Chinese motiva- motivations are still ongoing. And the another main major reason that triggers this concern is the I think a lack of transparency because the Chinese government does not provide much how to say information on its engagement with the island countries. And for example. The foreign aid is an important component of the Chinese presence in the region. At the moment, the Chinese government, I think, has not provided enough information, especially a breakdown of the Chinese aid spending by country and by year. So a lack of transparency, I think, contributes to, to, to this growing concern. The Chinese presence or Chinese growing influence in the region has already had significant impact on traditional development partners, such as Australia, New Zealand, and the United States. Because it, it, it provides, it gives the Pacific Island countries a new leverage in their negotiation with, the, with these traditional development countries. And if you follow the Pacific diplomacy, you can see that some scholars, they, they said since 2013 or 2014, they said in the Pacific, we have a Pacific new, new diplomacy. That is, Pacific Island country has become more uh, active in conducting their, uh, their foreign policy. And for, yeah, I think the Fiji, the typical example, after the military coup in 2006, uh, the traditional donor countries, they, they imposed sanctions on Fiji, but China, I think, developed stronger relations with, with the regime. And also Fiji negotiated, I think, the, the, the Pacific Island Development Forum to demonstrate, I think, its, uh, uh, its growing influence. So I think this is about the impact of the Chinese rise on the traditional donors in the region. And of course, I think there are also big impacts on the Pacific Island countries themselves. And I think maybe you are going to raise the issue that is about the, the debates on the debt for equity issue in the Pacific. Yes, as the debt for equity issue or the debt sustainability or debt trap diplomacy issue, but there are also concerns that China uses the Pacific to further its geopolitical aims, say, for their military. How do you respond to those claims? Uh, I, I think this is a good question. That's about the, that China has uh, a military ambition in the region. Uh, I, I think at this moment, the Chinese military engagement with the with Pacific Island countries is still low, I think, in, in scale and also in depth. China currently, I think, engaged with the, the defense force in the Pacific, I think, in a few ways. One is through the high-level visits, that is, the, level, the visits of the senior delegations from, from the defense force of each side. And uh, I did some initial research. I found out that about one-third of these high-level military delegations from China to the Pacific are the, the People's Liberation Army Navy ships, including the Peace, the peace Arc medical, medical ships. They accounted for one-third of these visits. So this is one main type of the, the military engagement. And the second type is the Chinese military aid to the island countries, especially to those defense forces in the four, in the four countries, that is Tonga, Fiji, Papua New Guinea and Vanuatu. Vanuatu has a small mobile force. And the, this foreign aid, they, they are provided in grants only, not in concessional loans, but in grants only. And in the main, they are mainly used to, they are mainly provided in the form of military uniforms and uh, some vehicles, and also uh, the construction of some infrastructure, small infrastructure facilities at those, the Pacific Islands, the military barracks, such as in Papua New Guinea. 
and also that China has been providing a small number of the training for the military officials from these four countries. So these are the main forms that China has been providing assistance to the to the Pacific Island countries. I think to be fair, if we compare to this, the, military engage, the level of military engagement between China and the Pacific Island countries, and also the Australia and the US in the engagement with Pacific Island countries, we can see that the Chinese military engagement at, at this moment is still quite low in, term, uh, in terms of scope and depth. And, but in terms of the future, whether China is going to develop a stronger military in, interest in the region, at this stage, I think it's still up to, how do you say, it's still subject to debates. And a lot of people, they will use the theory or the, the three island chain theory to interpret China's military interest in the region. And they argue that some the Pacific Island countries, including some of the Pacific territories, they are located along this second island chain. It makes sense to some extent. Do you think China is engaging in debt trap diplomacy? Yeah, I think debt, uh, debt trap uh, diplomacy is one of the main concerns about China's, uh, China's rise in the region. And it's also become one of the, I think, one one hot topic. In, ter- in terms of whether China intentional, intentionally create this issue, I think maybe, um, based on my own research, I think maybe it's, it's not. Before China approves the concession loan agreements, normally they will also conduct their own feasibility study. Yeah, and one of the criteria is whether the, island, uh, the recipient country, they are able to repay these loans. Of course, I think China Chinese government has been using foreign aid as a diplomatic, the two, there are always a lot of flexibility when China negotiates the, the, these concessional loan conditions with the island countries. Sometimes they may provide for the political purposes. I think I would rather, how do you say, approach this question from the two other aspects. That is why those Chinese, the concessional loans are appealing to the Pacific Island countries. Yeah, I think the Pacific Island countries, they are interested in, in applying for Chinese concessional loans for Three main, three main reasons. One is that I think it's relatively easier to, to, uh, to apply for compared with the concession loans from the multilateral banks such as the World Bank or ADB or from the traditional donor states such as from the United States or Australia. Australia has now introduced the, the infrastructure facility. So the first reason is it's relatively easier to apply, to apply for and easier to, to be approved. And the second, I think that the Chinese infrastructure uh, projects funded by the concessional loans um, are quicker to, to deliver. They use a lot of their own workers, and these workers work, they work in shift. So that means that I think that those infrastructure products they can be constructed, uh, I think, um, relatively quickly. And I think, uh, I think a third reason why these island countries they are interested in Chinese concessional loan is uh, related to the the gap for infrastructure development. I think the Pacific Island countries, they, they need uh, more funding to support the, the, either the construction or the upgrading of those the infrastructure projects. You said there that Chinese loans are quicker to get, but is the reason they're quicker to get because the feasibility studies and the screening aren't as rigorous? I think to some extent, maybe you can say that. And also, I think for traditional donors, and also the, the China, they have different approaches. They have different standards or the, the different the guidelines on these issues. So the benchmarks are, are, are different. I think that could be one reason. Actually, I, another aspect I forgot, uh, I did, did not mention is what will happen if those recipient countries, they cannot repay the loans. I, I think based on my research, I think there should be some, some understanding among recipient country officials and the scholars, one day they may request the Chinese government to, to turn these concessional loans into uh, interest-free loans and then into grants. But I think this, this can be a mis- misperception or misunderstanding. Based on what has been happening, I think it is, it is quite rare that China will turn these concessional loans into grants. But it is more common that China will, how do you say, extend the loan repayment for another few years. I think the Tangan case is a good, good example. Yeah, the Tangan government has been, has been granted two rounds of the payment extension. And uh, 
with five years each. And the latest one took place in, in Shibi, October or November 2018, when the, when the APEC summit was, took, uh, was uh, taking place in Port Mosby. During the, th during the summit, the Chinese delegation, the Chinese pre the, the government delegation, and also the, the government delegation from Tonga, they had a bilateral meeting. And during the meeting, the, the Chinese side agreed to provide another five weeks payment extension for Tonga, and Tonga joined the China's Belt and Road Initiative. So we can see that the loan, the payment extension is more possible compared with the, 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 the forgiveness of the concessional loans. And I expect this will be the case I think in the future. You also said earlier that Chinese infrastructure is built quicker than infrastructure that's funded by other donors. And I've certainly seen that firsthand in the Pacific, but there are claims that the quality of that infrastructure is not as high as others. Do those claims have any validity? To some extent, uh, to some extent you, can, uh, you can see that. And I think uh, a, recent, a recent example is about the trilateral project between China, New Zealand, and Cook Islands. In their first trilateral, the project in Cook Islands, that's about the water supply, the construction of water supply in Rarotonga, the main island in Cook Islands. And the Chinese sites, the Chinese contract is called CCECC, China Civil Engineering and uh, Construction Corporation. And they are responsible for the construction of the main ring of the water supply. And uh, based on the, the reports from the Cook Islands News, they said some parts of the, the Chinese work has a quality issue and they have the re already raised the issue with the Chinese side. How do you think China measures the success of its aid strategy in the Pacific? I think this is a difficult question. In terms of the aid assessment, I think we can, we can approach this question from two perspectives. One is uh, from... Uh, Micro, micro perspective that focus on aid projects. I think the aid, the aid assessment, aid monitoring and aid assessment has been openly acknowledged by the Chinese aid agencies as the weak, weak links in Chinese foreign aid system. They have been trying to prove, for example, the establishment of the, the new Chinese aid agency, I think has, a one, has one clear mandate or responsibility that is to increase the aid monitoring and assessment capacity of the Chinese aid system. For individual aid projects, the Chinese contractors and the Chinese the, and their supervisors, they do conduct the assessments of their projects and they do produce the reports, but they, those are internal reports only and which we do not have access to. And, uh, and another perspective is a uh, is a macro-level perspective. The Chinese government they views foreign aid not only as a foreign aid, but also as a diplomatic tool to support the Chinese overall diplomacy. From this perspective, maybe we can say that China has achieved some success in delivering foreign aid to the Pacific Island countries. Foreign aid has been, uh, has been used to contribute to China to, an imp to improve China-Pacific diplomatic relations. And uh, one example is about the, the Belt and Road Initiative. For example, all those four countries that recognize Beijing, they have already uh, signed up to the Belt and Road Initiative. And uh, we can see that foreign aid have played uh, a role in those process. And also, with regard to the, the Taiwan issue we mentioned earlier, the two more countries, Solomon Islands and Caribas, they have switched from Taiwan to, to China. This could be interpreted as a success of, of Chinese the diplomatic, the diplomacy, including the foreign aid. So the armed countries, I think they have lent a lot of support to China on those UN voting. From this macro level perspective, maybe we can see that China can claim that its foreign aid has been successful to, to contributing to the China-Pacific diplomatic relations. Did you say there that China is hoping for favourable UN voting in return for its aid? UN voting, for example, the voting on the China related on the Taiwan related issue, not only UN voting but also the the, uh, the regional voting, and also the for example another case for example that took uh, that took place a few years ago is the is the China Japan competition over Japan's bidding for a permanent 
UN Security Council said Japan has been lobbying strongly for support from from Pacific Island countries to support Japan uh, obtain a permanent seat as a at a reform UN Security Council, and to which China is strongly opposed. So both China and uh, the Japan they have been lobbying uh, so strong support from the island countries. Could China be accused of buying UN votes with aid? I think the. For donor countries, I think a lot of donor countries, they just use foreign aid uh, to lobby for support from the recipient countries on certain issues. I think maybe to some extent, this is a, is a co- common phenomenon for a lot of donors. Okay, to close, you have studied trilateral cooperation extensively. Is it realistic to suggest that China and Australia could collaborate on aid projects on an ongoing basis. I used to be a supporter of the trilateral cooperation <laughs> when I was doing the PhD thesis on the trilateral modality. But now my views, I think, is changing. As, the, as your question suggests, I'm not that sure whether trilateral aid cooperation have a good future, has a good future, or has a lot of potential. Based on my research, I, I, I believe that the trilateral cooperation they have the potential to bridge North-South, co- or North-South cooperation and also the South-South cooperation. And to me, I think the, the current international aid system uh, has been divided. One side is the North-South cooperation, aid provided by traditional, by traditional donors to the, uh, to the recipient countries. And on the other side, that's the South-South cooperation. That's aid provided by those emerging donors, such as those BRICS countries. To the island, con- uh, to, to the recipient countries. To me, I think the international aid system is becoming a bit divided. A trilateral or three-party cooperation that involves a traditional donor, a emerging donor, and the recipient countries, they could play some role in bridging the gap between these two types of the, the aid modality. The other strengths of the trilateral cooperation include the the trust building between a traditional donor and uh, emerging donors, such as China. So I think this is a good thing. And some of the other, I think the strengths could, could include the, the trilateral cooperation provides opportunities for, for the receiving countries to learn from the two types of the skills and expertise. That is the skills and expertise from both traditional do- donors and also the emerging donors. I think this is beneficial for the receiving countries. But at the same time, I think there are the downsides with the trilateral aid cooperation. And one, one clear uh, obstacle it's about the, the increased coordination cost. When you provide bilateral aid, you only have two partner countries, the donor and the recipient. But in trilateral, trilateral aid cooperation, three parties are involved. And these three parties, they could be so different in terms of the, the expertise, experience, and expectations. So this makes the coordination cost, I think, very, very high compared with bilateral aid. And I do agree that the the trilateral project between Australia and China and Papua New Guinea are malaria control. I think this is a good project and it is a good example to illustrate that the donors, they do can, they do can cooperate. And this type of the, the three-party cooperation create a win-win-win situation that is, benefit, uh, that is beneficial for the three sides. But I think, uh, and, and I think that another reason for for the growth of the trilateral cooperation from the traditional donors' perspective is that I think traditional donors, such as the Australia and the United Kingdom, they faced out their bilateral aid to China a few years ago. And so in this case, the trilateral aid provides a new channel or provides a new opportunity for traditional donor states to engage with China and to influence China's the, the aid practices. So in this case, I think that trilateral cooperation provides a new, new opportunity for engagement, and also they can contribute to bilateral relations between the, the two types of donors. But the trick is seeing that, on the one hand, I think uh, the, the trilateral aid cooperation can contribute to the improved the China traditional donor bilateral relations, but on the other hand, for example, if the China-Australia relations is in strength, it is getting more and more difficult and uh, more, more and more difficult to start to kickstart uh, the new trilateral aid projects. Because based on my experience, the current trilateral, the current pilot trilateral projects, 
there are, there are results of the the political support from the both sides. Once you have the once you have the political supports or political commitments from the both governments, China and Australia, it is easier to start to start a trilateral aid cooperation. Otherwise, it's getting so difficult to start uh, a trilateral cooperation uh, initiated from the working level. If the bilateral relations between China and a donor country such as Australia is is not in good shape, it will become more and more difficult to start uh, a new trilateral cooperation. We'll stop there. Thanks, Denghua, for your time. That's it for episode 80 of Goodwill Hunters from the Development Policy Centre. As always, we'd love to hear your thoughts. Please connect with us on social media via at GoodwillPod. See you next week.